The Cullen Commission tackles casino money laundering. This is a public inquiry into criminal activities. Who BC's Attorney General is blaming for holding up the investigation. Blockades go back up. That's what, that's what. The West Coast Express cancelled again while ships wait off the coast of BC. Why the backlog could take months to clear. And the Canucks lose their top goalie. He's flying back tomorrow. Going to meet with our doctors Wednesday morning. The injury that'll keep Jacob Markstrom sidelined at a crucial time for the club. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. With live pictures now breaking news of two protests causing major issues for the afternoon commute. One of them canceling West Coast Express service again for 5,000 passengers. And this one, a group of protesters blocking the busy intersection of Hastings and Clark in Vancouver, jamming up traffic in the area and partially closing off access to the port. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We're going to go right to Jill Bennett, who joins us live from the middle of the demonstration at Hastings and Clark. Jill, what's happening there right now? Chris, still about 100 people, maybe a few more now as people have gathered this protest. They have shut down the intersection of Hastings and Clark and that entrance to the port. They've just called for people to forage in the nearby surrounding area to get things to start a sacred fire. Now, they got here a few hours ago. We are standing here strong with White Sulatan and Tizanaga! Since uh, arriving here and shutting down that entrance to the port, they have called for more and more people to join them to bring blankets and chairs, saying that they are here for the long haul. Now, I did reach out to Vancouver Police. Police say they are monitoring it. There are certainly police officers stationed around this protest, and the streets are blocked off in each direction. A lot of people have been going through the alleys, uh, some in support, very uh, a few very vocal against. And I did just get a statement from the Port of Vancouver as well, saying that the court order is still in effect. That's the injunction that actually prevents them from gathering where they are behind me, uh, saying the court order is still in effect and that the port is working with Vancouver police to address this current protest. But as it stands right now, we don't know of any plans to move in and remove these protesters, and they say they are going to stay here for several hours. Chris? All right, we know a lot more coverage coming up through the evening. Jill, thanks for doing this for us. Now we're going to check in with Global's Catherine Urquhart who is at Vancouver's Waterfront Station. And once again, Catherine, West Coast Express commuters are going nowhere. Have you spoken to some of them? Yes, that's right, Chris. Another challenging and frustrating day for commuters who use the West Coast Express. We are here at Waterfront Station, and as you can see behind me here, the doors are closed and service is cancelled. This is the second cancellation this month due to protesters. Today, they are blockading the rail line near 225th Street and the Haney Bypass. A group calling itself the Red Braid Alliance says its blockade is in solidarity with with the wet sweatin'. How are commuters taking all of this? Well, here's a listen. Go march on legislature. Go get the, the, the uh, politicians to, to hear your voice. They'll get someone like me who's trying to get home to my family. Now it's gonna take me forever to get home. And, uh, you know, it's, that's, it's incredibly frustrating. I understand where they're coming from. I just wish there was a way that working people wouldn't be impacted. 
TransLink is advising customers to take SkyTrain to Coquitlam and then to get on a bus. Now, there's a really good chance that the morning commute on the West Coast Express will be impacted as well. Customers advised to prepare for that possibility. Chris, back to you. All right, could be very disruptive tomorrow as well. Thanks very much, Catherine. Protesters are also back at the B.C. legislature. They arrived this afternoon. About 200 people gathered at a ceremonial gate that's not used by the public or by MLAs. It's unclear whether or not this protest would be violating an injunction preventing protesters from blocking access to the legislature. But police are standing by, and that is a live shot on the steps of the legislature uh, right now. And we'll continue to monitor all of the locations where the protests are happening throughout the evening. Right now, though, in other news, COVID-19. B.C. has its seventh case of novel coronavirus. A man in his 40s was in close contact with a woman who is the sixth case. She had recently traveled from Iran, where COVID-19 has killed at least 12 people. Ted Chernecki has more, including the desire for more information about the patient's flight history. When that Air Canada flight from Montreal to Vancouver landed, the COVID virus landed with it and has since led to the discovery of case number seven. A man in his 40s who's also in the Fraser Health region, um, he uh, had onset of symptoms prior to case six diagnosis. Seven is a close associate of the young woman who brought the virus from Iran 10 days ago. The provincial health officer today still not disclosing that flight number. If we had concerns that we couldn't identify people who might have had close contact and might be at risk, then we would have put it out publicly. But we do, um, are, we are confident in this case and in our previous case where she also was symptomatic while traveling that we were able to identify anybody who had any risk. More disturbing is a sudden spike in COVID-19 cases in Iran, South Korea and Northern Italy, especially in the Venice area where they've had to cut Carnival short. There are more than 200 confirmed cases there and at least six deaths. The sudden increase of uh, cases in Italy, the Islamic Republic of Iran and the Republic of Korea are deeply concerning. The World Health Organization is not calling this a pandemic yet. It still believes the virus can be contained, as do authorities in B.C. who are even more optimistic, but preparing for the worst. We do know if it starts to um, be transmitted widely in communities around the world that there's no way we can contain it forever. That said, YVR is not screening arriving passengers, but is offering information. On a positive note, five of the seven patients in B.C. are recovering from the virus, with the latest two in stable condition and in isolation. Ted Schoenacke, Global News. Meantime, international health officials are concerned about the increase of COVID-19 cases outside of mainland China. An Iranian politician is claiming 50 people have died in that country this month alone, but Iran's health ministry is insisting only 12 deaths have been recorded to date, and government officials are now vowing to be more transparent. South Korea is reporting hundreds of new cases a day after its president called for unprecedented and powerful new steps to combat the outbreak. The country has seen more than 800 people infected, and 15 countries have now placed travel restrictions on South Korea. The virus has also claimed a seventh life in Italy, where there are more than 220 confirmed cases, forcing officials to put several towns under lockdown there. 
Now, the combination of the COVID-19 outbreak and the anti-pipeline blockades across Canada is having a serious impact on the B.C. economy. Our Legislative Bureau Chief, Keith Baldry, is in Victoria with the details. Keith, you've seen the major backlog in B.C. ports. You've seen the ships uh, out mm-hmm. and off the coast stalling the flow of goods across the country. Yeah, I was just down when I flew from Vancouver to Victoria on a float plane on Friday, Chris. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, ships, uh, a lot of ships in English Bay before, but on Friday what I saw was English Bay had about 18 and a number of ships close to the Gulf Islands and Vancouver Island in numbers we've never seen before. It's unprecedented. And the reason for that, the rail blockades have stopped the flow of rail, of goods on rail lines, which means the port of Vancouver is in no position to actually have ships come in and load them up with, with everything from grain to potash to lumber because the goods simply aren't moving. Uh, so here are the numbers of how the ships break down in terms of their anchorages. As I mentioned, English Bay, as of this morning, 15 ships in English Bay, four off Nanaimo, eight off Valdez Island, just off Vancouver Island, eight off Ladysmith, five in the Gulf Islands of Salt Spring and Pender, six in Cowichan Bay, a total of 46 ships at anchor. Port of Vancouver tells me they are completely at capacity, either with ships at anchor or ones already assigned. Uh, the subject came up in question period today. The Liberals demanding to know what the NDP is doing about getting those ports open again and having the flow of goods uh, continue. Here's an exchange. It, it has been now three weeks since the blockades to paralyze our economy started. There are vessels sitting today empty on the BC South Coast as ships await cargo from the port of Vancouver. Local exporters are unable to move their products to their global uh, customers and this is an unprecedented hit to BC businesses and BC families and BC jobs. Over the past uh, seven days, I've been in intense discussions with premiers across the country. The most significant blockades, of course, being in Ontario and Quebec that are having an impact on the port of Vancouver and vessels that are now uh, harbored all the way out through the Strait of Juan de Fuca. We're working with the prime minister. We're working with the federal government to make sure there's a way forward. Now, I want to take us uh, back to that unfolding protest on the front steps, Chris. We've got a live shot again of uh, what's going on there. The crowds have thinned a bit. I've talked to some key staff members in the legislature. I get the impression from them that the police are not going to uh, interpret this as a violation of the injunction in terms of enforcing that. So I think the decision is going to be made to allow them to remain there because it's at a ceremonial gate. It's not used by the public. The other entrances are open to the public. Uh, We'll see how it unfolds for the rest of the evening. But right now, I get the impression from staff that that protest Protest is going to be allowed to continue because uh, enforcing it might turn a, a little ugly. But we'll see if they are there overnight and tomorrow morning when we come back to work. All right, we'll check back in if anything changes too. Thanks yeah. very much, Keith. Alberta's beleaguered oil sands industry suffered another major blow today. BC-based Tech Resources has withdrawn its application for a $20 billion mine. Tech is abandoning the project amid an ongoing debate over climate policy in Canada. CEO Don Lindsay says the issue has placed the company at the center of broader issues that still need to be resolved. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney is blaming a, quote, militant minority for the decision. The mine has gone through nearly a decade of reviews and promised to create 10,000 jobs. But right now, it's something that every pet owner will eventually deal with, the dreaded vet bill. Pet insurance promises to ease the pain 
But our Consumer Matters reporter, Andrew, has the story of one man whose experience should be a warning to others that you've got to know what you're paying for in these cases. That's true. And as one expert told me, go in with your eyes wide open. Thanks for that, Chris. Sure. When a B.C. man bought his pet insurance, he says he was only shown a glossy brochure with very few details. It's only when he got the actual insurance policy and started delving into the fine print, he realized he wasn't getting the coverage he thought he was going to get. For close to a decade, Cam John and his dog Marley have been best friends. Cam yep, rescued his faithful help. companion eight and a half years ago and thought getting pet insurance would ensure Marley would get the best care. When you think of insurance, you know, you think that they got your back. Cam says he started out paying roughly $50 a month for his pet insurance, but year after year, his monthly premium climbed. What's worse, he says, the claims he's made for Marley were mostly denied. Every time I made a claim, I would get a, a statement back saying that either my claim wasn't uh, accepted on my, it wasn't covered, or uh, it didn't surpass my deductible limit. During his most recent claim, when he did surpass his $300 deductible and submitted his paperwork to the insurance provider for close to $1,000, Cam says of that money, less than $20 was covered. In fact, Cam has calculated that over the span of eight and a half years, he has paid more than $6,000 in pet insurance. But of that money, he says he has only been reimbursed $15.60. It made me feel like they had no intention to help me. Vancouver animal lawyer and professor Victoria Schroff says the biggest reason claims are denied is because of pre-existing conditions. Insurance companies are not charities. They are there conducting a business. So how do they make money? By not paying out. Schroff says in her experience, pet insurance benefits a small minority. Instead, she recommends self-insuring. Put 50 to $80 aside per pet into a savings account. Don't touch it. And remember to actually do it every month, and you will be able to insure yourself. Veterinarian Dr. Adrian Walton agrees and encourages clients to set aside money. Still, for those who choose pet insurance, he says it's important pet owners understand the details. Things including genetic conditions, vaccine coverage, the pet's age and breed. It's also really important to understand what a pre-existing condition is and maybe go through your medical records with your vet ahead of time to say, okay, look, we've had ear infections in the past. Maybe they won't cover those ear infections down the road. So you need to be prepared for that. As for Cam, he's dropped his pet insurance provider, deciding to self-insure. So again, if you do decide on pet insurance, make sure you ask the insurance company questions. But we can't stress enough, read the fine print of any policy. Policies are diverse and monthly premiums and deductibles can vary. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right, good advice. Thanks very much, Ann. We'll take you back to our top story right now. Dueling protests across the Lower Mainland, one at uh, Commercial in Hastings, sorry, Hastings and Clark, which is blocking uh, access to the ports. And then another one out in Maple Ridge, which has West Coast Express trains sitting idly in Vancouver. Both of those protests hastily organized right after the Ontario Provincial Police moved in on a blockade on Mohawk land near Belleville. Ten people were arrested when police dismantled that protest camp which caused the closure of some of Canada's busiest rail lines with a major cascading impact right across the Canadian economy. Sarah McDonald reports. Off. I'll stand where I want. I'm in Uber Territory. 
out more arrests Monday at another blockade that brought Canadian rail traffic to a screeching halt for weeks. Protesters and police clashing in Ontario as journalists and cameras were kept at a distance. And it's more than just um, about pipelines. To me, it's about Indigenous sovereignty. Those detained here on Tiandanega Mohawk Territory say they're standing in solidarity with their counterparts in this province, fiercely opposed to a natural gas pipeline that's divided Wet'suwet'en what Nation and the country. There is now a clear playbook for radical activists to follow. Canadian political leaders sparring over the economic fallout of crippled rail traffic in Parliament. We've been working with rail carriers to ensure uh, that many trains continue to use alternate routes. As Indigenous leaders remain at odds over the stance of this sprawling nation on the proposed $6.6 billion pipeline, given the green light by banned councils but opposed by unelected traditional chiefs. Who these protesters in Metro Vancouver maintain they're standing with. We're standing in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and with Tyendinaga. But they don't speak for all Wet'suwet'en people, many banking on the benefits promised by the lucrative project. In terms of the economy. The voices of supporters and nation elders like Russell Tiljo, who sat down with Global News last month. Disregarded by demonstrators. I really don't like the confrontation, the roadblocks. I believe in negotiating. But just as rail traffic got back on track in Ontario Monday, yet another blockade appeared in northern BC as government leaders struggle to keep a growing protest movement from going off the rails. Sarah McDonald, Global News. You might remember this from last week. The implosion of a tower in Dallas didn't go exactly as planned. The elevator core refused to go down, creating what became known as the Leaning Tower of Dallas. Demolition crews were back on site today going old school, using a wrecking ball to try to demolish the tilted core. It's obviously very slow going. The building site will eventually be home to a $2.5 billion multi-use development. Disgraced movie mogul Harvey Weinstein has been found guilty of two sex assault charges. Weinstein was found guilty of committing a criminal sex act in the first degree involving one woman and rape in the third degree involving another woman. The jury acquitted Weinstein of two other counts of predatory sexual assault. Jurors in New York deliberated for more than 25 hours before reaching a verdict. Those convictions carry a sentence of up to 25 years in prison. An emotional and star-studded ceremony in Los Angeles today paying tribute to an NBA legend. A packed Staples Center remembering Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and seven others who were killed in a helicopter crash last month. After opening songs by Beyonce, Kobe Bryant's wife, Vanessa, read a love letter to her, quote, baby girl and soulmate. They couldn't be on this earth without each other. He had to bring them home to heaven together. There was plenty of emotion. He wanted to be the best basketball player that he could be. And as I got to know him, I wanted to be the best big brother that I could be. But also laughter. 
Now he's got me. I'll have to look at another crime meme for the next. As basketball greats celebrated a fellow giant now gone. Kobe, your heaven's MVP. I love you, my man, till we meet again. On January 26th, Kobe Bryant's helicopter crashed, killing him, his 13-year-old daughter Gianna, and seven others. Losses felt across the nation and around the world. We're still the best team. We love and miss you, Boo Boo and Gigi. A legacy that will endure through the ages. Gina Kim, NBC News, Los Angeles. The number of drug deaths in B.C. is showing a sharp decrease in health matters tonight, but health officials are warning us not to become complacent. Nearly 1,000 people still died from an overdose in 2019, a third less than the year before. But as Romina Dea reports, it's nearly the same number as when the provincial health emergency was first declared. It's a killer, more deadly than car crashes, homicides and suicides combined, say BC health officials. Today in BC, three people will die of drug toxicity. Three people died yesterday, and it's very likely that three will die tomorrow. More than 5,000 people have died of illicit drug overdoses in this province since 2015. The youngest, 13 years old. The oldest, 76. A catastrophic rise in the body count over the last five years, until 2019, when the death toll dropped. The latest numbers from the BC Coroner Service reveal 981 deaths last year, a 36% decrease from 2018. We are heartened that the deaths are down somewhat, but that means the measures that we have put in place are helping to keep people alive. But this remains a crisis at hand. 87% of deaths continue to occur indoors, not on the street. Fentanyl detected in a majority of cases. The hardest hit areas, Vancouver, Surrey, Abbotsford and Victoria. This is still a public health emergency and our overdose response as a government will continue firing on all cylinders based on four proven pillars of prevention, enforcement, harm reduction, and treatment and recovery. But it's not enough, says the grandfather of Carson Kremeni, the 14-year-old who died of a drug overdose near Langley Skate Park last year. What did you say your name was? Onlookers laughed, then posted Kremeni's last moments alive online. If there was a terrorist group that was killing 900-plus in B.C., everyone would be up in arms. We need everyone to be up in arms, says Daryl Kremeni, who believes the public has become numb to the death toll, which continues to claim lives on a daily basis. Romina Dea, Global News. Well, it's a crime wave that affected everything from the price of real estate to auto sales to the opioid crisis and beyond. Money laundering in B.C. casinos had many disastrous impacts. And now the long-awaited Cullen inquiry might even lead to some criminal charges. Global's John Waugh has helped expose the extent of the problem, and he has the latest. Its job is to follow the flow of dirty money in British Columbia and find out who opened the floodgates to organized crime leaving a lasting stain on casinos and real estate while fueling the fentanyl crisis. All rise, the Cullen Commission hearings have now commenced. The public's hope for answers and accountability 
is now in session. Our mandate and the nature of a commission is we're here for the people of the province. That's who we report to. The Cullen Commission starting with opening statements. Groups with participants standing voicing what direction the public inquiry should follow. The commission must be fearless because the consequences of failure to address this crisis and hold those responsible for its expansion and duration are serious and ongoing. This is Asian crime gangs. Some ask for better protection for whistleblowers like Muriel Labine. A gaming supervisor who spoke out about organized crime infiltrating a BC casino in the early 90s. The legislation falls well short of best practices internationally and would not have enabled or protected attempts at whistleblowing around money laundering. The Council for Great Canadian Gaming going on the offensive. If mistakes were made by Great Canadian in identifying and reporting certain transactions, they were statistically few of a minor nature and were the result of inadvertent human errors. Government agencies like the BC Lottery Corporation stating it shouldn't be judged by past actions. Caution should be exercised by the Commission when you assess past events and past responses to money laundering through the lens of what we know today. The BC Government Employees Union echoing the public's desire for truth. None of the work undertaken to date grapples with the question of accountability, fault-finding and remedies. Despite competing interests, the Cullen Commission knows British Columbians are tired of hearing about the problem. They want to know who's responsible for turning this province into a haven for criminal cash. John Hua, Global News. And while the decisions being made by Commissioner Cullen are independent from government, that hasn't stopped political reaction from pouring in pretty quickly. A war of words is playing out on the sidelines between the NDP and Liberals. And as Richard Zussman reports, it's over the release of cabinet documents. It's around this table where Premier Christy Clark and her predecessor Gordon Campbell discussed amongst many issues money laundering in British Columbia. And Attorney General David Eby wants to know what was said. I think the expectation of all British Columbians would be that the BC Liberals would instruct the public service to disclose, without qualification, without censorship, the entire package. The government is convinced the Liberals are hiding something as the Cullen Inquiry kicks off in Vancouver, saying it's a conflict of interest that former Finance Minister Mike DeYoung is the one in control of the information. MLA DeYoung is the last person, perhaps the last person on earth, who should be taking on this task. The BC Liberals have been widely criticized for not doing enough to address the money laundering issue. DeYoung responding on Monday to EB. They are going to have access to all of the cabinet documents uh, pertaining to the previous government that they want or need. The Liberals going on the attack themselves. Leader Andrew Wilkinson appearing on the Linda Steele show on CKNW from the legislature. Because we have no idea what the Cullen Commission will pursue. They may decide that all kinds of things are commit red herrings because David Eby has been running them up the flagpole. The next question is, what politicians will actually be asked to testify at the inquiry? And even though the commissioner isn't looking for his advice, Eby has made a list. Christy Clark, Mike DeYoung, Rich Coleman, uh, I think they should be glad I'm not the commissioner. In the game of back and forth, the Liberals say, bring it on. I'm, I'm quite happy there's an inquiry. They'll finally get past some of this innuendo and accusation, and let's get down to some facts. If they are called to testify, it isn't expected to happen until the fall. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. And how about this? Vancouver police couldn't quite believe what they found when they pulled over this truck. The litany of offenses right after the forecast. 
with Christy Gordon. Took a look out the window and saw beautiful snow-capped mountains there mm -hmm. on the North Shore and snow fell in other parts too, Christy. Yeah, we had a really dry week last week, with, which was nice with the sunshine, but the snow came back out this weekend. So we had a lot of photos from uh, this one from Kamloops, a stunning photo. Thank you to Robert and Claudine. And this one from Grant Matisse on Mount Seymour today. And it really had me wondering, it's this time of year that we start to think about the snowpack as we approach the end of winter because it has an influence on the spring flooding potential. Uh, we're still weeks away, so don't get too excited just yet. But here's a look at what the River Forecast Center is saying today. And this is based on the percentage of average. Looking at BC as a whole, it's at 108% on average, the mountain snowpacks are. But in southern BC, it's at 120. Now, 120 is an important number because it's 120 or higher that we start to get concerned because it has the potential of increasing the likelihood of flooding in the spring. Um, when we break down southern BC a little further, Vancouver Island is pretty light for snowpack, only at 78%, but Okanagan is at 130%. So we'll be watching these numbers really closely. We still have six to eight more weeks of snow still to come and a lot can change, but certainly we are tracking these numbers as we approach the spring months. And overall, uh, when we look at the long-range forecast from Environment Canada, including February, and this, is, this has been the case, above normal is expected to continue precipitation-wise in the interior and much lighter amounts for Vancouver Island. So we'll watch to see how things transpire, certainly. But over the next 24 hours, we're expecting wet weather across the coast. So it was nice and dry today, but don't leave home without your rain jacket tomorrow. You'll certainly need it, especially across the north coast. Now, southern BC, it will be mostly dry, but mainly cloudy. A few flurries in through the Columbia region and for our region, not heavy rain, but certainly rain on and off by late morning and then through the afternoon hours. A bit on and off. Wednesday looks dry, wetter on Thursday. Friday looks dry again, but certainly some bright patches expected this week. And we continue with a look back at 2010. Central Windows window weather window. Thank you to West Coast Spark for this one. They lit the uh, the cauldron over the weekend. A big party in Jackpool yes. Plaza on Saturday night. Looked like a lot of fun. Okay, thanks very much, Christy. Now to that traffic stop that was anything but ordinary for the Vancouver police. They were shaking their heads when they pulled over a pickup truck. The driver was initially stopped for having an unsecured load, but they also discovered he was using jerry-rigged flashlights as headlights and as taillights. It's also the 10th time this driver has been busted for driving with no insurance, and he hadn't complied with a previous inspection order. The multiple fines totaling nearly $2,000, and the truck was impounded. Police are also exploring with ICBC whether the driver can be kept off the road because he has such a long history of infractions. Well, no doubt they had flashlights, but it was still a cold and wet night and a story to remember for a group of scouts. They were on a camping trip in the rugged, rugged wilderness on the west coast of Vancouver Island when the group of eight 11 to 14-year-olds and their three leaders got stuck on the wrong side of a fast-rising creek. Brad McLeod has their story. The scout motto, Be Prepared, may have saved the lives of eight people trapped in the wet and windy forest on the west coast of Vancouver Island. We are, uh, we are a long way uh, up into the Sioux Hills, up well into the watershed, a uh, long way up a long, windy, steep logging road. The group of three adult scout leaders and five kids ventured off into the woods near Jordan River Friday. What started out as a camping trip led to a fight for survival 
when the weather turned. The group got hit with 90 plus kilometer an hour winds, blowing snow, and got trapped. There's a river on one side of them that was a creek when they came in, and uh, on the other side there's some cliffs. With no safe way out for the kids, two of the scout leaders decided they would go get help, leaving one adult behind with the scouts. The plan? If they are not heard from in a short time, those left behind would use a radio to call for help. And the group didn't hear from them. Authorities knew the kids were safe, but stuck. The search began Sunday for the two adults. It went well into the night and resumed Monday morning. That's when... One of our search teams was tasked to go out to an area where there are some high cliffs, and sure enough, that's where they were. One of the pair had an injured knee, but was otherwise okay. They say conditions were brutal. Like, you name it, the worst-case scenario is that's yeah. what it was last night. So why did they venture out? Other options were to try to take the kids out, but because of how the storm was, um, it wasn't advisable. It. Now, this community needed a win. Earlier this month, three young men in their 20s were killed when the pickup truck they were driving was washed away during another extreme storm. This couldn't be better timing to have this kind of an outcome for us. Once they found the two leaders, the search and rescue volunteers spent the rest of Monday trying to find a safer route for the trapped kids to get out. Brad McLeod, Global News, near Jordan River. All right, Squires back. Uh, Canucks have been feeling pretty good about the play of their goalie up to this point. Well... He's been the main reason they are what they are. I mean, other guys have been great, too, this year, like Quinn Hughes and Pedersen, but it's been Markstrom, the main guy, just like last year. Uh, after avoiding injuries to key players all season, the Canucks' nightmare scenario is now happening. First, it was Brock Besser. Now it's Jacob Markstrom, the club's MVP this year, the main reason they are where they are in the standings. He has a lower body injury. It's likely a knee injury, and it could keep him on the shelf for a month. The Canucks will know more when he meets with team doctors. The injury forced Jim Benning to make a sudden trade. They had to send young goaltender Zach, or make that Zane McIntyre to New Jersey, for veteran goaltender Louis Demang, who will now back up Thatcher Demko until Markstrom returns. Well, we've been, you know, we've been working with Thatcher Demko now for a year and a half, and this is, you know, he's played good goal for us. We, our team has confidence in him. Here's Sunquist. It's not a perfect situation, but it's, it's you know, it, it is what it is, and it's going to be a great opportunity for Thatcher. The Canucks say Markstrom got hurt in the Boston game. Perhaps it was on this save when he jammed his right knee up against the post. Whatever it was, it didn't really flare up until the team arrived in Montreal for tomorrow's game. Flew to Montreal. He, we went and he did an MRI this morning. Um, he's flying back tomorrow going to meet with our doctors Wednesday morning and we'll have a better timeline after that. So now it's the Demko and Deming show, although Louis Deming likely won't see much action with only 21 games to go. The bulk of the net mining now falls on the shoulders of Thatcher Demko, who is 50th overall in save percentage and 53rd in goals against average right now. So the Canucks are going to need to tighten up their defense to help him out. That's, you know, probably what Travis is going to, you know, talk about the team about is we got to make sure that, you know, we continue to play with structure and, and you know, the second chance, second chance shots and rebounds and stuff that we clear the front of the net. So, you know, I'm sure that, you know, Travis is going to continue to harp on the players about that. And, um, you know, I expect us to, to keep playing with good structure and, and, you know, that being a part of, you know, how we're going to, 
continue to get better as a team as we go down the stretch. And depending on how Demko does, will that make the Canucks think differently about their contract negotiations with Markstrom? No, no, we, we've had a plan all along on how we want to try to handle the both of them. And so, you know, we want to make sure that you know, with Thatcher, it's it's been about his development. Like, we've been trying, you know, we made sure that he played, you know, in AHL there and developed as a goalie and got lots of games. And then the next step was bringing him up here and, you know, practicing and, you know, being a backup. We decided to do that last January. So he had the experience the last half of last year and so far this year. So, you know, at some point, he's going to have to take the ball and run with it. And, and like he's played good for us all year, so I expect him to be good. Now, aside from getting Louis Domingue, the Canucks did nothing on trade deadline day, but really, they had done whatever they needed to do before today. This ended up being the Canucks' big trade acquisition, Tyler Toffoli, and he arrived almost a week ago. It was a move Jim Benning felt he had to make when Brock Besser went down. Vancouver paid a hefty price, giving up prospect Tyler Madden and a second-round draft pick. Considering the way first and second round draft picks were tossed around on trade deadline day on Monday, Benning's early shopping looks pretty good right now. And then, you know, I guess given the prices at the end, I was happy that we did the Toffoli deal earlier rather than later. So, um, you know, as it comes down to the end, teams are looking to add that one more piece that they think can make a difference in their team. And, and as we've seen today, the prices went up. There were, there were some high prices paid, I thought, today. Benning ended up doing very little on trade deadline day for a couple of reasons. The Canucks remained hopeful that Brock Besser could return before the end of the season. And for that to happen, they need cap space. So they really couldn't afford to add another asset, be it up front or on the blue line. So no Wayne Simmons and no Tyson Berry. Benning also likes his hockey team right now and felt that keeping this group together was the right thing to do. Like I've said all along, I really like our group. I, li I like the team, I like the players. I like the chemistry of the group. You know, what other teams did doesn't concern us. We need to take care of our own business. We need to keep playing well as a team and, you know, win our share of games. And, you know, we've played together all year as a group. So I think there's something to be said for that too. And as for those Troy Stetcher trade rumors, one final thought from Benning. So there was teams that called me on Troy Stetcher. Like I never brought up his name like we were trying to move him. I like Troy Stetcher. He's a competitive kid. Um, he's a Vancouver kid. He, you know, he shows up and he competes hard every night. Um, you know, it got out there that teams are calling us on him. Um, but, like, he's part of our group of six guys. And, you know, I was never really looking to shop him or move him. It's just it came out there that teams were calling us on him. Okay, so we can't give you all the trades, but here are some of the guys and where they move. Robin Leonard now, one of the goalies in Vegas. Uh, Edmonton loaded up. Pajot going to the Islanders. Ottawa got quite a bit from him. And as you can see, Wayne Simmons didn't come here. He went to Buffalo and said, I don't know why the Sabres wanted him. Patrick Marlowe now in Pittsburgh chasing a Stanley Cup. There you go. Hold up. We'll end tonight with a great example of what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Former junior goalie David Ayers, a father of three, and occasional Zamboni driver made a sparkling NHL debut at 42 years old. And as Global's Tom Hayes reports, Ayers is making the most of it. 
put it on net and Ayers made the save. It's the dream come true that just keeps on giving. I can't hockey's breakout star, David Ayers, right here. Whitby Beer League goalie turned NHLer David Ayers went from a local story to the big time. When NBC's Today Show flew him to New York to relive the glory that he first thought was a joke. Actually, I did think it was a prank. When the guy first came into the room, he said, uh, get your stuff on, we're going out on the ice. And I, I said, are you serious? It was for real. A Zamboni driver for the Toronto Marlies was the emergency backup goalie about to make his NHL debut. Only imagine what his nerves are like right now, what his heart rate is like right now. His wife watched, his kids watched, a country watched as David Ayers, at 42 years old, became the oldest goalie to ever win his debut game in the NHL. It's a buzz that's still being talked about in arenas by those who have also dreamed. A dream come true, of course, and um, a little scary, of course. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, once in a lifetime chance. That chance was ultimately possible thanks to Ayers' mom, who donated her kidney to her son when he was 27 and needed a transplant. A touching story and a touching moment. You know, it's all about him. It's not all about me, and that's what matters. Uh, done good, yeah. Mary. Oh, done thank good. you, Mary. For Ayers, his NHL career is over, but he's still living the dream, and so are other beer leaguers now that they know what it takes to make it. Do you drive a Zamboni? No, I don't drive a Zamboni. Maybe you need to learn. <laughs> Tom Hayes, Global News. Hey, always, always helps to add a skill, I guess, doesn't it? What a cool story. And, and, and considering the Leafs have, like, high-priced forwards, yeah. big-time goal scorers, and they couldn't beat the guy who drove the Zamboni. little embarrassing. All right, we're going to end uh, with a very quick shot here of protesters. This is down at Hastings and Clark. They are still there. Also, watch here for updates on whether the West Coast Express is going to be running tomorrow or not. Protesters uh, have stopped it this evening, but it might be running tomorrow. We've got much more coming up throughout the evening. Thanks for watching.